Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Royalty Farmer First Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. I would now like to turn the call over to George Grofin, SVP, Head of Investor Relations and Communications. Please go ahead, sir. Good morning and good afternoon to everyone on the call. Thank you for joining us to review Royalty Pharma's first quarter results. You can find the slides to this call on the investors page of our website at royaltypharma.com. Moving to slide three, I would like to remind you that information presented in this call contains forward-looking statements that involve known and unknown risks, uncertainties, and other factors and may cause actual results to differ materially. I refer you to our 10K on file with the SEC for a description of these risks. With that, Please advance to slide four. Our speakers on the call today are Pablo Legareto, Founder and Chief Executive Officer, Marshall Urist, EVP, Co-Head of Research and Investments, Jim Reddick, EVP, Co-Head of Research and Investments and Chief Scientific Officer, and Terry Coyne, EVP, Chief Financial Officer. Pablo will discuss the key highlights, after which Marshall and Jim will provide an update on our royalty acquisitions and portfolio. Terry will then review the financials, and after concluding remarks from Pablo, we will hold a Q&A session. Chris Height, our Vice Chairman, will also join the Q&A session. And with that, I'd like to turn the call over to Pablo. Thank you, George, and welcome to everyone on the call. I am delighted to report a great start to the year for Royalty Pharma, building off our strong momentum in 2020. Our financial performance in the first quarter was excellent, with strong double-digit top-line and bottom-line growth. In addition, we continue to execute well against our strategy. We announced up to $787 million in new royalty transactions, as well as an exciting new thematic index collaboration with MSCI. And looking ahead, our pipeline continues to be very active as the demand for royalty funding of life sciences innovation is exceptionally strong. Lastly, we're also raising our guidance for adjusted cash receipts for 2021. On slide 7, you can see our financials in a little more detail. In the first quarter, we delivered 37% growth in both adjusted cash receipts and adjusted cash flow, what we consider to be our top and bottom lines, respectively. This excellent momentum positions us well to deliver another year of strong performance, as Terry will speak, to when he discusses our raise guidance for this year. So overall, I'm extremely pleased with our start to 2021, and for reasons we will highlight during this presentation, we continue to believe our prospects look very promising. Before I hand it over to Marshall and Jim to update you on our royalty portfolio, I would like to elaborate a bit more on a recently announced collaboration with MSCI to develop and market thematic indexes in life sciences, biotechnology, and, and the pharmaceutical spaces. Thematic investing is a fast-growing category of assets under management globally, and we believe we can leverage our unique skill set based around our deep scientific and clinical knowledge and our data analytics capabilities to develop novel indexes in partnership with MSCI, an innovative index provider. We see this collaboration as having a number of benefits to Royalty Pharma. First, it is expected to create a recurring and growing license revenue stream on global life sciences under management linked to these indexes. Second, we believe it expands our commitment and recognition as a leading funder of innovation in the biopharmaceutical industry. And third, we expect that upfront costs required will be minimal as we already have the capabilities in place to contribute to this important new collaboration. In terms of the financial contribution, we expect this collaboration to start small and play out over a longer period of time. That said, thematic index investing is a rapidly growing area with more than 400 billion of assets under management, of which approximately 100 billion are invested in ETFs and 300 billion in mutual funds. With healthcare representing an important segment of the economy, contributing to around 18% to U.S. GDP, we think this collaboration could be an attractive source of recurring cash flow over time. With that, I will hand it over to you, Marshall. 
Thank you, Pablo, and good morning and good afternoon to everyone. We are really excited about the royalty acquisitions we have announced so far in 2021, and I'd like to take a couple minutes to highlight two of our recent transactions, which expanded our portfolio of innovative high-growth therapies. Beginning on slide 10, in April, we learned we announced the acquisition of GlaxoSmithKline's royalty interest in the Cabozantinib products Cabometics and Cometric. For an upfront payment of $342 million and potential milestones of $50 million based on approvals in lung and prostate cancer, we will receive a 3% royalty on worldwide net sales. Cabomedics is a leading TKI approved for renal cell carcinoma and hepatocellular carcinoma and is marketed by Exolexis in the U.S. and by Ipsen and Takeda outside the U.S. Most recently, Cabomedics received regulatory approvals in the U.S. and Europe for use in combination with the PD-1 inhibitor Opdivo in first-line renal cell carcinoma. Cabomedics is also in a number of ongoing combination studies in kidney, liver, lung, and prostate cancer. Overall, we see a tremendous opportunity for this therapy to improve treatment outcomes for a large and growing number of cancer patients. And as reported by Exolexis last week, the early launch in first-line kidney cancer in combination with Optivo is off to a good start. In terms of the financials, the street expects Cabometics and, uh, and Cometric sales to grow from just over $1 billion in 2020 to $3 billion by 2025, and we are excited to add this important therapy to our portfolio and expect it to deliver an attractive return for Royalty Pharma as well. Now, moving to slide 11, we're excited by the opportunity for Oxlumo, a transformative medicine that significantly improves the lives of patients suffering from the ultra-rare genetic disorder, primary hyperoxaluria type 1, or PH1. Oxlumo is an RNA interference therapeutic which lowers levels of oxalate that are abnormally elevated in PH1, resulting in kidney stones and ultimately kidney failure. Oxlumo was approved in the U.S. and Europe in November 2020 and is marketed by Alnylam, a company that has pioneered RNA interference therapies and successfully launched other rare disease medicines. Last month, we acquired Dicerna's mid- to high single-digit royalty interest in Oxlumo for an upfront payment of $180 million and $60 million of potential sales-based milestones. Following its launch at the end of last year, the uptake has been encouraging and we are optimistic that the number of patients that could benefit from Oxlumo should expand with increased awareness and diagnosis. Consensus estimates show sales of $333 million in 2025, and Alnylam has described a potential market opportunity in excess of $500 million. Similar to Cabomedics, we expect Oxlumo to generate an attractive return for Royalty Pharma. And with that, I will hand it over to Jim. Thanks, Marshall, and good morning, everyone. As shown on slide 13, we have seen strong progress from our portfolio in the first quarter, and there are multiple upcoming clinical and regulatory events that could impact our portfolio throughout 2021. So far in 2021, we have seen an important development for our migraine portfolio with the start of the phase 2-3 study on Biohaven's intranasal Zevegepant. <clears throat> As a reminder, we agreed in August 2020 to fund the development of this therapy by providing up to $250 million to Biohaven. Should this therapy be approved in migraine, we will receive 1.9 times the funded amount, or $475 million, which would be paid over a 10-year period, and also a royalty on sales. Additionally, in the first quarter, Biohaven filed for European approval of its oral migraine therapy, Nurtec ODT. <clears throat> and lastly, the European regulators approved Roche's Everisdi for SMA, as well as Biochrist or Ladeo for hereditary angioedema. In April, the FDA granted full approval for Trodelby in triple negative breast cancer and accelerated approval in urothelial cancer. In addition, we saw the European approval of a subcutaneous formulation of Tysabri. For the rest of the year, I would call out the upcoming clinical data on Cabomedics in first-line hepatocellular carcinoma and in prostate cancer the readout for Trodelby and hormone receptor positive breast cancer, as well as the phase three results of PTO27, the combination asthma therapy that we have funded through Avilion that would be marketed by AstraZeneca. So in short, you can see the multiple milestones over the coming quarters showing the continued development of our portfolio. With that, I'll turn it to Terry. Thanks, Jim. Let's move to slide 15. 
We delivered a very strong first quarter with total royalty receipts of 19% year over year. As you can see, royalties from our largest franchise, Cystic Fibrosis, grew 68% this quarter. This substantial growth was driven by two factors. First, the continued strong performance of the franchise, led by growth of Trifacta, Tricasta in the U.S., and Caftrio in the EU, the impact of which was enhanced by our acquisition of the residual royalty interest from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in November of last year. And second, a one-time adjustment related to Vertex's agreement with the French authorities around reimbursement for our candy that reduced royalty receipts in the first quarter of 2020. Imbruvica, Extandi, and Promacta also contributed double-digit growth in the quarter. We are also pleased with the contribution from several recently approved therapies, including Tradelvi, Evrisd, and Nertec ODT. Nertec is becoming an increasingly important contributor to our business after we received a $16 million payment from Biohaven on the Series A preferred equity this quarter. This payment was triggered by the approval of the product last year and is the first of 16 consecutive quarterly payments we will receive. We also experienced a couple of headwinds this quarter. Specifically, the HIV franchise was down significantly, primarily as a result of the LOEs for Trivada and Atripla, as well as a lower percentage of combination sales attributable to entrocytabine in the United States. We expect similar dynamics to impact the HIV franchise in the second quarter, leading to year-over-year declines. Taken together, the portfolio drivers mentioned previously, as well as contributions from several recently approved products, more than offset the impact of declines in royalties for the HIV franchise, delivering strong growth in total royalty receipts. Slide 16 shows how our royalty receipts translated to strong adjusted cash flow in the quarter. As you're aware, adjusted cash receipts is a key non-GAAP metric for us, which we arrive at after deducting non-controlling interests. This amounted to $524 million in the quarter, growth of 37% compared to last year's first quarter as Pablo noted earlier. We did recognize a high base of of comparison in the first quarter of 2020 that increased our growth rate in the first quarter of 2021. Excluding this item, year-over-year adjusted cash receipt growth would have still been 22%. When we move left to right, operating and professional costs of $42 million equated to 8% of adjusted cash receipts. This percentage is lower than in the past couple of quarters, which included certain IPO expenses, as well as expenses related to our bond offering. Net interest of $63 million reflected the first semi-annual interest payment following our $6 billion unsecured note offering in 2020. As a reminder, the next semi-annual interest payment is due in September, meaning our net interest expense will be de minimis in the second and fourth quarters. After other items of $7 million, we reported adjusted cash flow, our bottom line earnings, of $409 million, or 67 cents per share. This translates to an adjusted cash flow margin of 78.1%, again, highlighting the strong cash conversion in our business model. Turning to our balance sheet on slide 17, we ended the quarter with cash and marketable securities of $1.8 billion. The decrease of just over $200 million since the start of the year reflects the $521 million deployed on royalty acquisitions, which was largely offset by the strong adjusted cash flow I just described. We finished the quarter with $6 billion of investment-grade debt, which, alongside our undrawn $1.5 billion revolving credit facility, gives us a strong liquidity position. Taken taken together with leverage of 2.4 times EBITDA on a net basis and 3.4 times EBITDA on a gross basis, we remain well positioned to continue to fund important innovation in biopharma. My final slide provides our 2021 full year guidance. We now expect adjusted cash receipts to be in the range of $1.94 to $1.98 billion, an increase from our previous guidance. Our new adjusted cash receipt guidance represents an increase of between 8 to 10% over the $1.8 billion we delivered in 2020 and reflects a number of pushes and pulls. In particular, this raised guidance reflects the new royalty acquisitions Marshall spoke about as well as the strength of our portfolio, 
offset by declines in HIV that were more substantial than we initially expected. We are quite encouraged to see that, our, our, that despite headwinds with our, within our HIV franchise, which we do not expect to be a contributor to our business beyond 2021, we are still able to increase guidance to year-over-year growth of 8 to 10%. Looking forward to the second quarter, we expect adjusted cash receipts, excluding new investments, to be at a similar level as the second quarter of last year. Turning to operating costs, we expect these to be approximately 9 to 10% of adjusted cash receipts for the year, which is unchanged from our prior guidance. Consistent with our standard practice, this guidance is based on our portfolio as of today and does not take into account any future acquisitions. With that, I would like to hand the call back to Pablo for his closing comments. Thanks, Terry. So in conclusion, we're experiencing a really strong start to the year. We continue to be very excited about the growing role of royalty funding to advance health outcomes for patients globally, as well as the powerful dynamics in our business. With that, I would like to open the call to Q&A. Back to you, George. Thanks, Pablo. We will now open the call to your questions. Operator, please take the first question. Ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. If your question has been answered and you'd like to remove yourself in the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Christopher Schott with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Morning. Uh, this is Chris Nairon for Chris Schott. Uh, so first question is a high-level one on inflation. How does the, uh, how does the potential for higher inflation impact Royalty Pharma's business model going forwards? And specifically, how do you view the balance between the cost of funding and the, for future transactions and the potential for lower sector valuations? Uh, second one's on synthetic royalty deals. Royalty Pharma introduced synthetic royalty deals several years ago and has completed several transactions but this remains a fairly small portion of the royalty market overall. How much of these transactions are you, uh, uh, do you see uh, as part of your business mix going forward, and how much traction have you received negotiating synthetic royalty deals uh, with your potential partners? Thanks so much. Terry, would you mind taking the first question, and maybe Marshall can take the second one? Yeah, and, and maybe before, before I answer the first one, I, I, I just – could you just sort of clarify the, the question? I want to make sure I, I, I understand the question. Yeah, so with the, high, with the higher inflation, um, we're seeing the potential for kind of a negative impact on sector valuations. Uh, so we're just, uh, I'm just trying to think through all the, uh, all the pushes and pulls on Royalty Farmers' business model uh, and what impact inflation may have on your business going forward. Okay, understood. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, others should should could could weigh in as well. But you know, I would say um, our view is, you know, if if valuations across the sector um, are impacted by higher inflation, then that could actually increase our opportunity set um, as companies look for alternative ways to fund themselves beyond just the traditional equity capital markets, um, we think that that, that could actually uh, enhance our business. That makes sense. And, uh, uh, good morning. On the second half of your question on synthetic royalties. So, um, yeah, thanks for the question. We, as we've talked about in the past, we are really excited about the potential um, for synthetic royalties as a new and, you know, ultimately important way of funding drug development and innovation in our sector. Um, you know, we are very active there and expect it to become an important, you know, an increasing part of our business over time. Um, I think as you've seen in the past, you know, we do have a very, um, a very, uh, you know, high bar when we look at new, when, when we look at new opportunities and we're going to maintain that growing, going forward. So, um, you know, I think this is, I think it's exciting. We are seeing a lot of traction there actually. And, you know, I would, I would remind everyone our, our, our last transaction there with BioChrist um, at the end of last year, um, you know, Orladeo's launch there is off to a great start. So we think the we, we think the BioChrist team is doing a great job with that launch. And I think you'll continue to see us do those deals in in the future and continue and continue to add to our portfolio through through synthetic royalties over the coming years. 
Thanks for taking the questions. Our next you, question. Our next question comes from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Your line is open. Hey guys, uh, good morning, and, and thanks for the question. Uh, just have a few. Uh, the first one is. You know, how much of a contributor can the MSCI collaboration ultimately be? I just want to know if you guys had any more detail about, you know, how it, it could generate cash for royalty. And the second question is, you know, Terry, you mentioned that the HIV erosion was worse than you guys originally modeled. I know you typically look at consensus numbers per each product, but going forward, are there, you know, additional analyses that you could conduct? I'm just trying to think of all the inputs and outputs to what you guys provide as, as, as guidance and, and how that could be enhanced. Thank you. So I'll take uh, the first question, Jeff. Thank you for the question, and good to hear you. Um, and I, I think just very briefly on HIV, I mean, this is uh, the end of this investment, so it really is not going to drive uh, much uh, regarding the future, but Terry can give you more uh, uh, information there. So regarding MSCI, uh, if I step back a little bit, just you know, from a big-picture perspective, let me just mention a few things. One is it's a business that I've uh, followed for decades because uh, I know uh, well have a, a relationship with a, a chairman and CEO of, of decades. And I recall uh, in conversations with him many years ago where I said to him, I think your business is really, really interesting because if you think about it, um, you know, the indexes really what they, what they produce is – Loyalty on global assets under management. Um, the way uh, index um, creators and publishers, um, MSCI being, in my view, the most uh, creative of the three big ones, um, the way they get compensated is that all of the asset managers that license their indexes pay them uh, a basis points, you know, three, five, six basis points on the assets managed by the specific fund. So if you have you know, Capri, Fidelity, a Mundi that is uh, licensing those uh, indexes, um, they would pay MSCI uh, basis points, as I said, on, on their uh, uh, assets under management. And if you think about it, over um, long periods of time, assets under management grow. They could fluctuate from one quarter to the other because of the volatility in the market. But if you look over a 5, 10, 20-year period, you know, there's obviously – uh, significant growth in, in assets under management. Why? Because economies grow, people save more. So, so it's a, a very interesting dynamic there. And I recall in a conversation with Henry, I said to him, I love your business. You really have this royalty on global assets under management. So that, the, you know, uh, relationship continued. He's obviously on our board now. And about a year ago, we started to discuss about the opportunity in life sciences because it's an incredibly important part of the world economy, and maybe, maybe broader than life sciences, you know, all healthcare um, and, and growing, um, and highly complex. If you just take, uh, you know, a biopharma, for example, we have the big pharma, there's an index there, and we have biotech also with an index in, in biotech. But it's probably, as far as it goes, there might be one or two other, you know, small indexes that are maybe not that common or, or investors don't pay too much attention to. But if you think of biotech, with more than 8,000 biotech companies and, you know, 3,000 that are public, um, highly complex, you know, you have companies that focus on one product, and then there might be in oncology or in multiple sclerosis, companies that have, you know, technology platforms, either gene therapies or you name it. You know, it's, it's highly complex, so it's very difficult for investors really to, you know, understand how to invest in biotech. Um, obviously, they do it by investing in mutual funds. Um, but if you then look at indexes in life sciences, so, so if you look at indexes in general, you know, we are, all grew up with indexes that were sector indexes, like utilities, banks, insurance companies. And a very interesting new trend, recent trend, is indexes that are thematic, where, um, you know, investors can invest based on a specific theme they, li theme they like. And when we saw this in life sciences, we just thought that there was just an incredible opportunity to start to create indexes that would actually track better what's going on in specific themes within life sciences. So you could create an oncology index. You could create an early-stage biotech index where investors could invest in early-stage biotech that offer huge upside potential but are risky. And if, if you do it 
by investing in an ETF that gives exposure to um, early-stage biotech, it's much more interesting, safer than actually picking one or two stocks where, you know, it could be uh, tough and, and you could lose money. So, so you know, and, and if you just think about it, we could create indexes that maybe track Chinese companies, um, indexes that are going to track other aspects. It could be a, a CRO index or, a, you know, a hospital index. And, you know, so from our perspective at Royal Pharma, what's so interesting for us is that um, we're going to apply our knowledge built over, over decades, um, this knowledge base and expertise we have, and just monetize it, create from that knowledge that we already have, um, we're going to create a revenue stream for us that is really a royalty on, on you know, investments in life sciences, global assets under management invested in life sciences linked to this indexes. And it's, it's going to be a sharing of the top line. We're going to get a percentage of the top line that is not quite, you know, sort of 50-50 because obviously we recognize that this is, you know, a very significant business for uh, MSCI and it's actually, um, uh, you know, they have all of the infrastructure worldwide to distribute this indexes. But it's, it's a decent size, you know, royalty, not far from, you know, an equal um, sharing. So it's, it's very exciting to us. Um, it will start uh, uh, low, but if we look, you know, into the future, maybe three, five years, ten years from now, I think it will be an important revenue contributor. And another really important thing is that it's actually, um, you know, the cost for us is very marginal because we're already – we have a lot of this knowledge. We're actually investing – in uh, with the new and new group that we created, the um, strategy and analytics uh, group, uh, trying to e- even enhance more our knowledge base. So you know, for us to actually provide this and and and, and this uh, the service we need to provide in the collaboration with MSCI, you know, it's going to be half a million million dollar incremental investment, which is well worth it. And maybe just to finish, to give you a sense of why this is exciting, if we look at um, all of the disruptive technologies that are changing the world, and uh, here I'm talking about, you know, technology in general, um, soft, you know, Internet, all of the things that we all, always talk about, but also biotech, very important. Um, it, it is estimated that uh, the, the um, creation of value, if you look at the market cap created by all of these disruptive technologies, which is about $10 trillion in 2020, it's expected to get over $60 trillion um, in, in you know, additional market cap created, um, all of the new companies that end up you know, going public and then you know, achieving nice growth. Uh, this is expected to get up to about $16 trillion by the mid-2030s. And if we look at thematic investing, it's already a $400 billion uh, market where you have about $100 billion invested in um, ETFs and 300 billion invested in mutual funds. Um, so, and that is growing very fast. It was about 150 uh, billion uh, in 2015, and it's 400 billion, um, you know, uh, in 2020. So that gives you a sense of of the growth opportunity. Um, and I hope that answers your question, Jeff. And then Jeff on on uh, HIV. Um and you know, our, you know how we think about consensus. We 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 still do feel you know generally pretty comfortable with using consensus for sort of the the guidance that we provide. HIV is a little unique in that there's sort of two factors. There's there's net sales of the Gilead's products, but then there's also the percent of those sales that is attributable to emtricitabine, and that's actually the part that actually came in um, much lower than than we initially anticipated, but as Pablo mentioned, um, you know, HIV has been an amazing investment for us, um, but it's not, it's not a part of our future, and we're really encouraged to see that the growth across the rest of the business you know, more than offset uh, those substantial declines within HIV. Okay, great. Thanks, guys, for all the detail. Our next question comes from Terrence Flynn with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Great. Uh, thanks so much for taking the question. Um, I had one on Tradelvi. 
Um, there's been some discussion recently about the impact of prior CDK4-6 treatment um, that that could have on the efficacy of the drug in the ongoing uh, HR-positive phase three trial. Um, in the, if you look back at the phase one, two data in HR-positive, there was a bigger benefit for the drug in people that were naive to CDK4-6 versus those that were previously exposed. So just wondering, Marshall, if you could um, comment and if you have any perspective on the on this um, this trial, as I know it's a pretty important growth driver um, for the future opportunity here. Thank you. Sure. Hey, Terrence, good morning. Um, so on Tradelvi, um, thanks for the question. We've certainly been, you know, following the following all of the the um, kind of debate out there, and you know, it, it's certainly interesting. You know, I'd say bigger picture first, just bigger picture. Taking a step back, you know, you know, we think Tradelvi is is an exciting and going to be and is and will be an important therapy. You know, and certainly HR positive is one aspect of that. But if you think taking a step back, you know, there's a lot more there in terms of you know growing within triple negative you know, as well as bladder and then other indications. So, you know, this has been a, you know, a real kind of win-win for us in terms of a adding this to our portfolio, in terms of, you know, a great example of the power of a synthetic royalty transaction. You know, it, that being said, with respect specifically to the HR positive trial, um, you know, we we have, you know, we know what you guys know about this, so I think we're following this, you know, and look forward to the readout this year. Um, you know, Gilead obviously took a close look at this, I think, as they have talked about and, you know, has powered the trial adequately um, for for what will hopefully be a positive readout later this year. So I think, you know, something that is, is interesting, but regardless, you know, we, we think there's a lot of growth and future for Tradelvi. Thank you, Karen. Operator, we'll take the next question. Our next question comes from Greg Gilbert with Truist Securities. Your line is open. Good morning, team. Um, a couple of strategy questions. You've made it clear that you would continue uh, to consider development stage deals for products uh, in pipelines, but what's your appetite to invest in earlier stage but maybe more platform-oriented pl uh, technologies that could later spawn multiple products in multiple areas where you're not sure what those areas or products are yet. And then back to the MSCI arrangement, really interesting announcement there. Are there other themes under consideration in the near term or is the goal to sort of observe these two and see how they go? Um, but maybe as an offshoot of that, is, is this effort potentially helpful to your core business in sourcing new deals unrelated to the MSCI collaboration? Thank you. Pablo, are you on? Oh, sorry, sorry, I was muted. Um, so Jim, Jim can provide uh, the answer to the question related to the um, early stage uh, investment investments, and I'll answer your question um, about MSCI. So I think what this really uh, shows is how royalty pharma's model is actually not constrained. You know, we can be creative and look for ways to actually um, creating new sources of revenue like we have with this MSCI uh, collaboration. And, you know, I, I think there could be other things that over time develop um, like this that um, could create uh, sources of revenue. For us, it's interesting because, you know, it will give us potentially, um, you know, an exposure, economic exposure, to other parts of life sciences where we are not likely to invest um, in. So the focus, as you know, is, um, you know, therapeutics. Um, we, we can and probably will over time invest in other things that are not therapeutics, like it could be, you know, diagnostics and devices. We're very careful there because we want to make sure that these assets have very long life cycles, which, you know, uh, is an important thing which therape therapeutics do have. But, you know, we, we will also potentially, you know, uh, we're able to create indexes that are going to track those things like devices 
and and diagnostics, but also, you know, as I said, could be an index for CROs or, or other things. So that's obviously in the index category, but there could be other things. And maybe just one other thing that occurred to me just to give people a sense of the economics here. So if you have a fund that has $10 billion of assets under management and MSCI is going to charge somewhere between three and six um, basis points, it, it generates, you know, three to six million of, of revenue uh, per year. Now, if that fund doubles or triples over time, you know, the revenues will double or triple. Um, and, I think um, what's also very interesting for us about this is that it's perpetual. Um, you know, as you know, the royalties that we invest in have a life of 10, 12, 15 years, sometimes a little bit more, but um, they expire and we need to replace them. In the case of the indexes, this is perpetual. It will go on for many years, you know, for, forever. So, so um, with that, I'll turn it over, I'll turn it back to Jim to give you a little bit more perspective on, on our strategy regarding earlier stage investments. Hey, Greg. Thanks for the question. Yes, uh, it's a good question on, um, you know, going earlier stage and looking at, um, you know, whether there are opportunities to, um, you know, invest in platforms and, you know, potentially bring in multiple products at a time. Um, I, I do think that, you know, over the years we've demonstrated that we're creative and, you know, really kind of push the envelope in the royalty, you know, industry for going earlier and um, and finding, you know, ways that are risk, you know, aware um, to go into earlier stages of um, of development. You know, we kind of push the envelope into pre-approval. Um, we've since then done, you know, products that are um, even pre-phase three um, in a smart way and gotten returns on those. Um, we actually made an investment um, just recently um, as part of the uh, Orladeo investment. We made an investment in Biochris uh, Factor D drug uh, called 9930, which was in Phase 1 slash 2 right now. Um, so, you know, that's an example of us going early as a part of a larger deal. So there are a variety of creative structures that we're looking at right now that, um, you know, can give us some exposure to exciting new platforms and modalities and perhaps um, kind of groupings of products. Um, so I think that, um, so I think that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just leave it at, you know, we're, we're exploring those as a way to, uh, you know, keep the, keep the opportunities coming. But we do think it's a, it's a good thing for us to, um, you know, be apprised of. And actually part of the reason that we wanted to form the strategy and analytics team um, is to make sure that we're using data um, in the best way to make sure we know where all the promising opportunities are and to really kind of be mining opportunities earlier than we would before um, as a way of, you know, A, following them um, from an earlier stage, but B, um, seeing if there might be opportunities for us to invest earlier. Thanks a lot. Our next question comes from Kathy Miner with Cohen & Company. Your line is open. Uh, thank you very much for taking the questions. Just a, a couple. Um, first, could you just clarify on the HIV that the royalty expires this year, or is it, is it sometime during the year? And are there any other notable royalties that expire during 2021? Uh, second question is on the adjusted cash uh, receipts guidance that you gave. You said the increase was based both on the existing portfolio and on some of your recent additions, but is there also any change in your expectations for distributions? And the last question is a little more big picture. Do you expect drug pricing reform to increase or decrease the number, magnitude, and potential of royalties? Thank you. Terry, can you take the questions, please? Yes. Um, so uh, on your question on HIV, um, what we've said is that we expect it to substantially end in 2021, and we have not been more specific than that. Uh, your question on, um, on distributions as it relates to adjusted cash receipts, I assume you're, you're referring to the distributions to non-controlling interest. Um, yes. And uh, in the back of our deck, we actually – lay out, you know, what those different non-controlling interests uh, are or were for the quarter. 
And so that's 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 a pretty good guide for for you for um, you know how to think about what they'll look like going forward. Um, and then your last question was on uh, drug pricing, and I think that Marshall's probably the best person to to answer that one. Sure. Thanks, Terry. Good morning. Thanks for thanks for the question on this. So you know specifically to your question of how we think you know the what the outcome of you know what may happen on the um, on the drug pricing front could impact our opportunity set for for royalties and you know regardless of what happens i think we're we are very optimistic about uh, uh, about the size of our about the size of our market the number of companies that are going to be looking for you know looking for um looking for potential potential funding i think certainly we're all watching what um is going to happen in washington and all of the stops and starts and puts and takes that we've seen but you know i think we would we're focused on two things you know one is i think in terms of our current portfolio you know we are you know we are we have a portfolio that's highly diversified you know across products therapeutic areas marketers geographies payer types all you know all, all different <clears throat> types of types of diversification and you know, we've really focused on important drugs that are you know that really impacts patients lives and so regardless of what happens i think we feel good about where our where our portfolio stands now i think looking forward um you know we really um don't think that whatever happens will meaningfully impact meaningfully impact the number of new opportunities for us. When you look at the rate of company formation over the last few years, you know, we see that as a, you know, really encouraging leading indicator of the number of companies, you know, and the number of opportunities for us, the amount of innovation, how much is happening right now, you know, we think those are all kind of overwhelmingly positive in terms of how things may look may look going forward. So I think, you know, certainly, you know, the, you know, for all of us who have been around the industry for, for a long time, you know, we are continuing to follow, you know, what's happening on the policy front. But, you know, but we think all the, all the positives and tailwinds for our business are, you know, remain and will remain in years to come. Our next question comes from David Reisinger with Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Yes, thanks very much, and uh, thank you for the comprehensive update. So I have two questions. First, regarding the MSCI indices uh, global recurring revenue opportunity, um, could you just put that in a little bit more financial perspective? I mean, it makes a lot of strategic sense for you. I think you had mentioned, Pablo, three to six basis points uh, on assets for MSCI. You know, what could Royalty Pharma realize? And uh, should we think about this as being a potentially $5 million revenue opportunity in a couple of years for Royalty Pharma or, or a $20 million revenue opportunity? Just so that we, we have some context, that would be appreciated. And then... Second, Vertex has been uh, advocating uh, at recent investor conferences that it's excited about uh, novel cystic fibrosis candidate development, including potentially reducing royalties as part of that. Could you remind us about your position and, uh, and next developments to watch? Thanks very much. Thank you, David. So, with respect to MSCI, I actually would like uh, at this stage to just be very cautious about, um, you know, the, the revenue contribution just because it's something totally new to us that, um, you know, we, we would like to, uh, you know, understand better. Um, and I, we do believe that revenue contribution, um, you know, like this year probably we won't get anything. Why? Because the indexes have to be created, then they have to be, um, you know, sold to, you know, the team at MSCI and ourselves, um, you know, will start to talk to some of the major, um, you know, investors in life sciences um, to actually uh, see if they want to license the indexes. But, you know, what you will start to see is maybe some of the bigger ones, a BlackRock or a Mundi or others, you know, they might create 
uh, an ETF uh, if we launch an oncology index and, and uh, you know oncology ETF or we launch an early stage biotech index maybe you know an early stage biotech ETF and then mutual funds so it will take time um, and I even think that the revenue next year is going to probably be very small because again it's all in the launch phase but you know at some point this will gain momentum. Um, and if you just look at the fact that today there's 400 billion invested in thematic indexes already, 100 billion in um, ETFs and 300 billion in mutual funds, you know, and and a lot of that is technology because um, there is really, you know, life sciences uh, is is behind. It hasn't really happened. So, you know, could that 400 billion grow over the next 10 years to a trillion? I think it will probably. Um, and, you know, what share of that is going to be life sciences? And then, you know, then you have to sort of go through the, the economics that MSCI will get and then what we will get. So, you know, I think this is something that, that looking in, in sort of, you know, the second half of this decade, you know, could become uh, important. But maybe, you know, um, as time evolves and we get a better sense of how this could grow, um, you know, we could uh, be a little bit more specific at this stage. You know, I am very excited because it's, it's, it, it not only um, shows what we can do with the Royal Therma model in things that were totally unexpected. I mean, nobody thought of this, had, had it in their model, so it's, it's potentially something new for us. Um, and it also will benefit, I mean, there was a question before about um, whether this will benefit our core business, and absolutely it will. Why? Because, you know, in, in that effort of us really looking into um, you know, uh, life sciences and, and, you know, trying to look, you know, in three, five years as to what are going to be, you know, the, the, you know, important, um, therapeutic areas. Um, and we'll, we'll also start to look at, you know, the, the companies that are starting to invest in that, many of which may have things in, you know, preclinical. But if you start to look at those companies and track them, you know, through an index and you start to see how, you know, the, the, the value uh, creation, you know, begins or how capital is shifting from, you know, into those areas, it will give us a feel for that. Um, and, you know, j- just as an illustration, I mean, things that, you know, it, um, Chinese biotech, for example, you know, we looked at it last fall as we were starting to talk to um, MSCI about this, and I was blown away to realize we, myself and the team have been going to China and the you know, past years to try to explore, you know, what, if there's anything for us to do in that market. And, you know, I was blown away last fall where I, when I checked the market cap of Chinese biotech, and it was about $700 billion. And I think it, you know, went as high as maybe a trillion dollars. And there's about 800 Chinese biotech companies that are public, 800 biotech companies, which is a very significant number. Um, so it, it gives, gives you a sense of what's going on in other markets, and it will help us at Royal Pharma to, you know, make sure we're really understanding the space, um, you know, in, in a very uh, deep way and we can, you know, understand the trends uh, better. Um, so, you know, that, that's an um, additional perspective that I wanted to provide. And then, Dave, on your question on um, on the cystic fibrosis franchise, um, we, we, we've certainly, you know, heard um, – comments from Vertex about future potential combinations and uh, potential lower royalty rates on those combos. Um, Our position's unchanged, so, you know, as it relates to any combination that includes deuterated Kaleidico, our position is that deuterated Kaleidico is simply Kaleidico, and Kaleidico is a collaboration compound that's royalty-bearing. And with regard to any other components of of combination products, I think there's you know there's a, there's a number of factors to to consider. So you know which components are they, and uh, are they royalty bearing, and at what level? Um, and then you know as those combos move forward, it's you know time to time to enroll the clinical trials in a population that is you know at this point pretty well served. Um, and then the success and timing of potential regulatory approvals, and then ultimate uptake versus Trikafta, which is a, a pretty remarkable drug for CF patients. So uh, our view is we expect CF to be a very important contributor to our business for many years to come. 
Um, and in the meantime, we're going to keep uh, focusing on executing our business plan and adding innovative new therapies to the portfolio. Thank you. Our next question comes from Uma Rafat with Evercore. Your line is open. Hi, guys. This is Mike Fury in for Umar. Thanks so much for, for taking my question. Just two for me, just to piggyback on, on the previous question before on, on Vertex. They, they've, again, recently been very clear that um, what their next-gen triple combo may be, and, and that phase three is going to start this year. So my question is, given that things are starting to be more definitive, has anything changed regarding Royalty Pharma's long-term outlook and potential or willingness to do earlier-stage deals? Uh, just given the uh, more certain step down in, in, in future royalties. And um, secondly, uh, and, and separately, um, just the oral CGRP market outlook, especially with AbbVie's recent um, Japan data in preventative migraine, um, which are, has your outlook changed regarding the implications for Biohaven's future royalty potential? Thank you. Thanks for the question, Mike. Terry, can you take the CF question and marshal the um Migraine uh, CGRP uh, question. Yeah, Mike. I think you know. To be honest, I think it's really premature to to be talking about uh, any changes to our long term outlook. I think you know, what I what I just said holds. We we feel really confident in the long term in the long term performance of the CF franchise. Um, you know, as other as other products come along, it's it's all going to be sort of case dependent, but. They are going to have to compete against Tricasa, which again is 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 a great drug, and and we're entitled to very attractive royalties on Tricasa. Um, and then, uh, you know, would it change our strategy? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, I think we're going to we're going to keep doing what we've been doing, um, and uh, keep you know reinvesting in what we think are the most exciting wave of of new products in this industry, and you know that's that's the plan, um, and you know, that, that's what we're going to stick to. Hey, Mike, good morning. Thanks for the questions on, on the CGRP class. So I think there's multiple aspects to it um, of what you're raising. I think at a high level, you know, we are excited by what we're seeing on the oral CGRP market in terms of the market uptake and the success that, you know, Biohaven and AbbVie are having there. And I think you know, we've heard um, AbbVie on, um, you know, on prior conference calls this quarter and prior ones, you know, really express their enthusiasm and excitement about the potential for a potential of this category, you know, and we are certainly excited to be a part of that um, with, with Biohaven. You know, I, I'd, I'd remind you that we, you know, we have multiple, um, multiple uh, avenues of exposure to this market. Certainly, Nurtech ODT in the acute market is um, is part of it right now. Um, Biohaven has the, uh, you know, the, the the filing to have the first ever, you know, dual label for acute and prevention. Um, and the Paducah for that is is coming up, so we think that's interesting. And then it would remind you too that we did a um, you know that we uh, of our deal with Biohaven from last summer to support the Zvezhepant development program, and they are also you know exploring oral Zvezhepant in the prevention market as well. So you know we think it's a you know it, it is an exciting category, and we're excited to have kind of multiple. Um, you know, multiple ways that we can participate in that. Just lastly, um, I, I think it's a, you know, this also highlights an exciting aspect of the Royalty Pharma business model in that we can have, you know, multiple ways to, you know, to play or participate in an exciting class like the CGRP. So we also have a royalty on Lily's and Gality, and then also on, you know, multiple of the oral CGRPs, which we think is pretty unique um, aspect of our business model that we see a class and a market that we like and has a lot of potential. And I think certainly the early launch, the early launch of the oral CGRPs are bearing that out that, you know, we, we have the strategic flexibility to be involved in that in multiple ways. So, um, you know, we're, we're excited about the outlook for CGRPs and look forward to seeing that play out in the coming years. Got it. Thanks so much. And our last question comes from Andrew Bond with City. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, 
global system shocks such as the pandemic seem to be reshaping the relationship between governments and the industry in a number of dimensions. So you've already addressed drug pricing, but if you look at IP in light of the comments on vaccine waivers and also tax, you can see how there may be increased risk compared to what we might have envisaged previously. How do you think about those individual characters in terms of the risk for your operating model going forward? So that would be the first question. And then the second question is, um, there has been a increase in the number of competitors in your space, so patient squares, so XKKR executives have moved into your space. They're not just doing royalties, they're doing SPACs as well. How are you looking at the competitive environment and confidence that your um, moat of cash flows gives you in terms of continuing to secure the, the most attractive assets? Many thanks. Yeah, so um, maybe Chris can take um, the, the first question. With regards to competition, um, in fact, uh, you know, all of the SPACs that have been created, um, that, and there's many of them um, that are investing in sciences, um, I see those as actually, uh, you know, additive to our uh, effort because what's happening there is that there's a ton of uh, capital that actually um, has been raised by, by the SPACs uh, you know, that are focused in life sciences, um, you know, many billions of dollars. And, again, that's going to fund, um, you know, private companies, um, give them the capital they need to continue to invest in research, to bring pro products forward, and eventually they could become partners of ours, you know, tar you know companies that we could uh, partner and collaborate uh, to help them um, eventually bring uh, products to market. So, I think, you know, the more capital that is invested in um, in life sciences, the better. And, you know, one other comment to make about, you know, um, this new index collaboration, um, you know, I was in a conversation I had with uh, the, the MSCI team, the chairman and CEO, mentioned that, you know, in, in, in conversations they've had with, uh, uh, you know, world governments, you know, World Bank, how, you know, um, capitals flow around the globe in the, you know, investment community. Um, and, you know, when markets open, and here markets not only geographically, but also, you know, think about it from an industry perspective, um, you know, the fact that MSCI uh, creates indexes attracts, you know, many billions of dollars of capital into that space. Uh, and I gave the example of, um, you know, maybe an early-stage biotech index or an oncology index or you name it. It can be many others. And, you know, then what is, is likely to happen over time is that, you know, as, as you know, uh, products are created like ETFs or mutual funds to focus on that specific theme um, or, ne or new market, um, you know, capital flows and then, you know, it, it companies end up getting, you know, additional capital to fund their the research. So it's it's a very interesting phenomenon, but one that you know, like this this whole uh, the development of thematic indexes in life sciences is going to make the whole life sciences investment opportunity more understandable, more accessible to to investors and this will attract capital. So it's quite interesting from that perspective. Um and um and I think um you know it um and so I'll, I'll let uh, Chris answer the other uh, question um, about impact to life sciences from, from you know, big trends. Sure. Th thanks, Pablo. And, Andrew, thanks for the question. I think as it relates specifically to the intellectual property waiver, you know, we, we don't see that as something that's going to impact our business long term. I, you know, I, I know the idea has been floated um, you know, and obviously there's a pand global pandemic and, you know, from a compassionate perspective, you want to get as many vaccine doses around the world as you possibly can. And there's probably more efficient ways to actually just transfer excess doses once the supply is there as opposed to trying to waive intellectual property and, and with know-how. Obviously, these vaccines are very difficult to make and manufacture. So I think it's probably more efficient ways to, to get the vaccines around the world than just waiving intellectual property. And we don't see 
you know, uh, the need for compassionate use right now uh, is impacting the intellectual property laws going forward. So we don't see that as impacting our business going forward. There are no further questions. I'd like to turn the call back over to Pablo Legareta for concluding remarks. Sure, Abair. Thank you. Thank you uh, to everyone on the call for your continuing interest in Royalty Pharma. My team and I look forward to continuing to share our progress with you. If you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to reach out to George. And uh, thank you for joining the call, and I hope everyone has a, a, a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this does include the program. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.